Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Strauss back to the show. This is Scott's third time on the show. He's a professor of political science at UW-Madison, and he's the author and editor of several books about mass violence and human rights. Today, we're going to talk about his new books, Fundamentals of Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention, published by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. The book is a slim but powerful examination of what we know and what we don't know about preventing mass violence, meant in particular for people interested in influencing or formulating policy. It's also worth reading just to get a feel for the state of the field. Scott surveys an enormous amount of literature concisely and carefully, and I'm greatly looking forward to talking with him about it. So, with that, Scott, thanks for being with us. Thanks for being back with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. Scott, why don't we start just, I know you did this before, um, but I know we have many listeners who probably have joined the podcast since then, so why don't we start just by giving you a chance to give a little bit about your background and and how you became a scholar of genocide and, and mass atrocities. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my interest really starts from when I was a journalist and I was uh, living in East uh, Africa in the mid-1990s, and I uh, covered the war in what's now Congo, then Zaire, which really was the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda, and sort of what I experienced as a reporter, uh, the kinds of stories I heard, and then, you know, subsequently time in Rwanda that I spent, and also Burundi at that time, you know, really just kind of generated these big questions in my mind, like, you know, why do these horrible mass violence and genocide cases happen? Why do people mm-hmm. commit this harm? How, what, ha- what happens in a society? How do you deal with it, etc.? And, um, and then I went uh, to graduate school um, in political science and made that the focus of my, of my dissertation and a lot of my training. Um, and I, you know, I really, I, you know, this book is not a good example of this, but I'm, you know, both a political scientist, you know, an Africanist, someone who studies Africa mm-hmm. and, and a scholar of genocide and, uh, and mass violence. And, and so I, I tried in my training, um, you know, tried to kind of learn about those three different areas. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so um, my previous work, you know, what you've interviewed me about before, is really, um, really trying to understand the, the causal nature of genocide. Why does genocide happen? And I've done that in my, you know, my first, uh, my first, you know, bigger book was on the Rwandan genocide, where I was looking more at the kind of micro level, the local level perpetrators, trying to understand mobilization, why people commit this violence. My most recent book was on um, kind of a more macro story about history and national trajectories and the influence of leadership, where I looked both at genocide and non-genocide cases and tried to understand 
what was different about them, given that they had similar risk factors. Um, mm-hmm. And this book is is different. It's different in the sense that it's aimed um, more at a general audience, more than, uh, at a policy-making or policy-implementing audience, as well as, a, as an undergraduate audience. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a different, it's a, it's, it's a different beast, if you will, um, than yeah. what I've done before. So let's jump into the book. Uh, and I should say to the listeners um, that there's a significant chunk of this book that really is attempting to explain how genocides happen and how perpetrators behave and what motivates perpetrators. And I'm going to, while we'll address that a little bit, I'm going to skip over that to favor some of the later parts of the book, because as Scott says, the interview that we did over his last book covers some of the same ground. So let's start, Scott. Here's, I've got in my notes kind of this vague question. What is this book about? In other words, you title the book Genocide and Mass Atrocities. What do you mean by these? And why did you settle on those rather than others? Okay, so I mean the book is really designed as a a, a one-stop shop, so to speak, <laughs> effort to to summarize a field of study, and it's a field of study that you know you cover in, in your podcast, and that mm-hmm. some of us have gotten interested in, um, and uh, and I think in in the policy world, I think in the academic world. I'd say genocide is still the unifying concept that brings people together. Mm-hmm. I'd say, and perhaps mass killing. I would say in the policy world, the conversation has shifted really to the language of atrocities and mass atrocities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case for a number of reasons. Um, one is that the, the term genocide as a, as a term that can uh, guide policy in real time has a number of limitations, which which we can talk about if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term atrocity is a broader concept. Uh, mass atrocity is a broader concept. Allows, I think, uh, actors to intervene at an earlier stage. Uh, and a lot of the international policy tools have been, <coughs> excuse me, conditioned not on just genocide, but on a broader range of crimes. So the the book, the title of the book, in terms of what it's about, you know, fundamentals of genocide and and mass atrocity prevention, I think brings these two things together. I mean, it, it recognizes that genocide is still the most visible, the most well-known concept that brings together the field, but also that uh, this term mass atrocities, I think, has become the, the term of reference, um, primarily in the NGO world and the policy world and so forth. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, when I've talked about the book, I'd say that that there's not widespread understanding of that shift, but I do think it's a mm-hmm. real shift. And so, so what kind of what kind of methodological challenges do you have in trying to write this kind of a book about policies in, in, uh, in about the subject of genocide and mass atrocities? How do you try and go about it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the method method was really just to try to, well, first of all, determine okay what should, what should be in the book. I mean, if mm-hmm. you wanted to have, um, you know, a, a quick reference to this field, what did you want? And so, so the first decision was really like what's in, and and mm-hmm. the book has kind of six sections, but two big ones. Um, this first is a kind of history of atrocity prevention across the 20th and early 21st centuries. Then this big chunk on, you know, the the sort of why genocide happens. You know, what are the kind of 
national risk factors and what are the short-term triggers and, and what motivates perpetrators. And then there's a section on um, policy and and then sort of the question there was, okay, well, how do you divide up that field or how do you divide mm-hmm. up that area? And so there's a kind of first uh, kind of the kind of anchoring policy frameworks that exist both domestically in the United States and then exist internationally, primarily at the UN level. Um, then there's the kind of question of like, what are the tools? Like, what are the actual policies that people can draw on? Um, and here, I think, you know, when I was first getting into this field, it was really like, you intervene militarily or you don't. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, it was like, do you do something about genocide or not? And do something meant you send in the troops. And I think what one of the things that I learned in this book, and that's reflected in that chapter, is there's a huge range of, of tools, mm-hmm. that some of which are coercive, but not all coercive tools are military ones, some of which are not coercive. Um, you know, depending on how much how many details we can go into some of that. Um, so, so the sort of next chapter there was sort of looking at the tools. Um, but as a scholar, I also know that there are a lot of problems with these tools, and yeah. our our understanding of them is is very incomplete in the sense that we we know that as scholars we know that a lot of times you know these tools don't work or they have hmm. negative consequences and. Mm-hmm. And it was my, I felt the responsibility as a scholar, which makes us, I think, not just a policy book, is not only to kind of outline what the tools are, but then to have a second cha- another chapter, in this case, third chapter of the section on, mm-hmm. like, what do we know about the effectiveness of these tools and what yeah. do we know about the kind of problems that they can create? Um, and so, and then there's a chapter on sort of looking at this sort of range of actors, I think. You know, the other thing is that you know this is true for many areas of kind of global governance and different kinds of international action. That it's not just states anymore. You've got a number of international organizations. You've got NGOs, citizens, etc. Um, and sort of surveying that. Um, and then the last section is about sort of the aftermath. The kind of mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, just general questions of rebuilding societies after genocide and mass atrocity. And then I'm sure you you know you know and your listeners do. There's been this you know revolution in kind of accountability practices, justice practices, mm-hmm. and trying to map that out as well. So to answer your question, the method was really once we decided what was in the book, the method then became sort of surveying the literature and trying to synthesize that literature um, about each of the different subject areas. So if it was, let's say, on the tools of, 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 of prevention and response, it would be looking at all the policy documents, looking at you know, what's been written about them, um, trying to come up with some uh, categorizations or ways of presenting that and synthesizing that that would be quick and, but accurate. Um, and so there wasn't, I wasn't generating, you know, Usually, when someone asks me about methods, it's like, well, how do you, how do you generate new information, or how mm-hmm. do you, you know, identify something causally, or what's your research design? I wasn't generating new data here, and I wasn't really trying to um, come up with a new theory uh, or anything like that. What I was really trying to do was synthesize the literature, but then put a kind of critical spin on it and sort of say, okay, given where we are, 
where does that leave us, and what should we what should we think be thinking about for the future? Um, and uh, so that so it was it was really it's really an exercise of synthesis. Um, that was really my method, um, mm-hmm. uh, rather than generating new data or new information. So you start the book, as you say, by by postulating or, or arguing that there's been a a, a fragile, um, nonlinear, but but still, over time, steady increase in the world's willingness and maybe ability to acknowledge attempts to prevent or stop mass atrocities as, as a moral imperative. What you call this the emergence of a norm of atrocity prevention. Um, how and why does this, I understand you could write a book about this, but relatively briefly, how and why does this happen? So I think so this, is, you know, this is the argument of the book. And mm-hmm. um, it was a surprise to me. I mean, I really mm. came away from this book and having surveyed this literature and really thought about the policy stuff, like, I really think progress has been made. Yeah. And it's really hard to say that in the face of Syria um, mm-hmm. and even Libya. But I really think that if you compare where we are now to where we were when I started to work on this area in the 1990s with Rwanda and Bosnia and even Kosovo, and East Timor in the, the very mm-hmm. late 90s and early 2000s, you know, I really think we're in a, we're in a really different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that you know, everything is hunky-dory and you know, all that. I mean, that's, that's the sort of the line I try to use in the book is like a lot of progress has been made, but there's still a long way to go. Sure. Um, so, so, I mean, your question is, um, you know, why did that progress get made? I think, and there are a couple ways to answer that question. I mean, I think that the failures of the mid '90s were were pretty massive. Um, mm-hmm. We came out of the Cold War with a with a naive optimism about a new world order uh, that led to kind of Somalia, which was a, which was its own set of problems, and then mm-hmm. the Iraq War and the efforts to protect um, protect Kurds and and Shia there, which also had its own problems, but you know, really, Rwanda and Bosnia, and they did, you know, back to back in the mid 1990s, were such, I think, massive international failures that it, it really, I think, stained a lot of people's consciousness. Like that, we need to have a different approach to international affairs if that's what we're going to allow to have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, and so I think it shaped. Citizens. First of all, I mean, in our world, it it sort of launched a scholarly field. I think the whole yeah. the whole comparative study of genocide came out of that moment. I mean, I shouldn't say it only came in. There was a whole pioneer of of scholar, you know, group of scholars who were doing this work in the 70s and 80s and even 60s. Um, but I'd say there was this, you know, this what I've called sort of second generation, or this. I think a, a new bunch of people were attracted to this topic uh, from a comparative basis. But outside of the scholarly field, I think within policy circles, I think both people in government, you know, Susan Rice, you know, in the United mm-hmm. States government, people like her, who were involved, you know, were in government you know, during the Rwandan genocide, who. Ultimately, we came to think like that was a huge failure. We, you know, Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton himself. I mean, these guys mm-hmm. went on to say like this is one of the biggest regrets of their administration from a foreign policy point of view. Um, 
I think within the United Nations, it was a hugely embarrassing. I mean, you know, the kind of reality of, well, let's take Bosnia, you know, the Dutch peacekeeper is getting effectively cordoned off by the Serbs while they went out and committed the, you know, Serbs went out and, Bosnian Serbs went out and committed, you know, the largest massacre on European soil since World War II. The fact that you had in Rwanda a peacekeeping mission on the ground with a force commander that wanted to be more aggressive and was warning people a couple months before that something bad could happen. And, you know, then the reaction was pull out the troops. I mean, when mm-hmm. the genocide started, I mean, I think these were hugely in- important events um, in in government and in these, or- in these international organizations. And I think finally among citizens, among, among students, people, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, people of my generation, yeah. you know, people who, um, mm-hmm. maybe some of your listeners, who I think were very, you know, taken by what happened. Um, and um, and so I think there was, I think there was a sense like, okay, this, 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 this is really bad. Like we, you know, mm-hmm. this, this is something that we shouldn't allow to happen. Um, then that really shaped the late 90s, where you get these more forceful, Responses, which was Kosovo, uh, East Timor, Sierra Leone, where you do see, I'd say, sort of the, the sort of pinnacle of interventionism on to prevent genocide and mass atrocities, where you see these collective efforts to intervene militarily. Um, and I think the problem was that um, there was no I think one one of the things I mean what I concluded about the 1990s was there was no policy framework right a lot mm-hmm. of these the only policy instrument that people were really working with was the genocide convention which for all of its great accomplishments is not a very good not a very clear policy yeah. framework it's not designed as a policy mm-hmm. framework so it's not there um, but basically the language is simply you know states that ratify the convention are obligated to prevent genocide um, but what that specifically means is that they have to go to you know, the competent organs of the United Nations to get the competent organs of the United Nations to prevent genocide. But what what exactly that means? What you know whether or not genocide can be defined and and labeled in real time? I mean, all these issues I think you know were left unanswered by the Genocide Convention. And so you had these these all of these. Uh, policy responses to Rwanda, to Bosnia, to Kosovo, to East Timor that in some ways were, were dancing around the Genocide Convention, but without a really clear thought-through policy framework. And furthermore, when Kosovo came about, um, you know, as I'm sure you remember, the, the United Nations Security Council was blocked because Russia principally, mm-hmm. but it was illegal. It was illegal to intervene to yeah. to stop uh, genocide or stop they didn't call it that, but just, you know on these grounds and um, and so the operation was channeled through NATO um, and I think that that whole experience of both you know Rwanda then Kosovo prompted Kofi Annan, who was then the Secretary General of the United Nations, to say, okay, we need we need some kind of framework um, that's going to allow us to manage the issue of sovereignty and the clear protection of sovereignty in the United Nations Charter and this strong imperative um, to uh, to stop a, you know genocide and other 
forms of atrocity, and, and that you know, ultimately gave birth in the 2000s to the responsibility to protect doctrine. And, and so the book is sort of, on the one, sort of trying to trace out that history at mm-hmm. the international level. And I think, you know, for all those problems, R2P, you know, is a, is a touchstone in the international system. There are a lot of people that still resist it and so forth. But in terms of thinking about, like, where we are today versus where we were in the 90s, mm-hmm. before the 90s, we have a framework now to think through this problem of, of when and why and under what justification can international actors respond to genocide and mass atrocity. You know, I think R2P, you know, I think is a framework by which to puzzle through that problem. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't really exist before. And I, and I think that's important. Um, so that's a sort of long way to answer your question. I think there's also, you know, just at the, so that's a kind of policy framework. I think at, mm-hmm. the, at the normative level, that is people's values. Mm-hmm. I do think that the, the Rwanda, Bosnia, and the subsequent books and movies and kind of conversations, I think were very important. Mm-hmm. And I think the way, the, probably the place that I locate that change is the response to Darfur. I mean, yeah. if you look at Darfur, um, there was a pretty significant movement, you know, whether you mm-hmm. want to call it a social movement, but a lot of organization and mobilization within civil society to respond to those atrocities in Darfur, to respond to the genocide in Darfur. And okay, there's a whole pushback against Save Darfur, and I'm happy to talk about that. And, you know, a lot of the criticisms, I think, make sense and are valid. But from my perspective, or what I'm looking at in this book, the fact that there was this mass movement around Darfur is very important. And you compare that to what happened in Rwanda, where you know, yeah. you know, I've heard these you know Congress people or people in government saying, no one was no one was calling us about Rwanda, you know, no one mm-hmm. was doing anything. So we weren't about to put our, you know, our political uh, take a political risk um, for something that no one knew or could pronounce or ever heard of, you know, especially in light of Somalia and so forth. So I think, you know, I think Darfur, I think to me is, is part of, uh, is evidence of, of a, of a normative shift. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. And I think, you know, within the various policy circles within the UN circles, within the United States government, I think within European, Australian, and then a bunch of the regional organizations, the African Union, uh, NATO, um, principally, um, I think there's been a lot of thinking about, okay, well, what do we actually do and how do we do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, so I think there's been a whole bunch of developments on the tool side in terms of peacekeeping, in terms of sanctions, in terms of, you know, the prosecutions, in terms of threat of prosecutions, in terms of, um, you know, communication, in terms of high-level diplomacy. And and so I think there has been a lot of, um, I think I think the, the so-called toolkit, and I, I don't love that term, which we, if we mm-hmm. want to talk about, but but the, the options that are available to a policymaker that wants to try to prevent or mitigate these crimes, I think that it's a much more developed um, set of approaches than was the case in the 90s and even early 2000s, where, again, I think the, 
the framing was like you you intervene or you don't. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. think I think we're in a different place right now. Um, and so anyway, so those are I guess long, typically long-winded. I was actually going to ask you about the the toolkit metaphor. I I teach the historical method. I'm a historian by training, and and one of the things I talk about with my students is that you can you can learn a lot about an author from the kind of metaphors they use. And for you, you you talk about how toolkit is the kind of broadly accepted metaphor, but but you have problems with it. What? Why? What are your problems? Well, I think that it. I think that okay, they're not huge problems, but I mean, yeah. it's basically, I think there's a sort of notion that there's like a set, uh, a sequence of things you can kind of reach into your cool toolkit. You try this, then you try mm. that, then you try that. And I think there's a couple problems with that. I mean, number one is that I think this notion of a sequencing is, 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 is incorrect. I mean, you can have at any, at any moment in a crisis, you can have sanctions, you can have a commission of inquiry from the United Nations, you can have a referral to the International Criminal Court, you can have um, diplomacy. And so a lot of things are kind of happening simultaneously, and mm-hmm. um, and I think a toolkit doesn't get at that. And the other mm-hmm. thing is that, and I emphasize in the book, is that I do think that each situation is different. Um, and so part of what, um, part of, well, one of the things, one of the conclusions of the book is that, you know, I think people need to make case-based analyses of mm-hmm. of what the constraints are um, and what the situation is. So, you know, in Syria today, the, constra- the international constraints on a more, you know, a more coercive response to the atrocities are very different from what they are in Burundi. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that I think the notion of a toolkit a bit decontextualizes that um, mm-hmm. and doesn't allow, um, you know, I think this sort of gets away from this sort of case-based uh, approach um, to, to atrocity prevention. So those are really the concerns. Yeah. So you, you, um, you divide strategies into prevention and response, and maybe that's a, a self-evident distinction, but maybe not. So, so what's the difference between prevention and response? So I think prevention is you know is the idea that you are taking measures to diminish the probability of an atrocity starting in the first place, mm-hmm. and so I think if you if you sort of, I mean, easiest way at least for me to think about this is if you think about okay we can identify there are a bunch of factors that typically make a country more prone or more vulnerable to this type of mm-hmm. violence you know they could be in an armed conflict they could have a history of discrimination. They can have poor human rights laws. They can have a low level of economic development. I mean, whatever. No, you know, it's a it's a non-democratic country. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, prevention is that you would address those structural causes of genocide and mass atrocity in such a way that you diminish the probability of genocide or mass atrocity occurring in the first place. So you would. If you have a history of discrimination, you try to address that history. You try to end mm-hmm. discrimination. If you have low economic development, um, it's a poor country uh, that you try to um, grow the economy. And similarly, if it's a non-democratic country, that you try to make it more democratic. And the, I think there's nothing wrong. I mean, the line in the book I take is that 
that's great. You know, I mean, these are generally things that everyone can sign on to, um, whether it's ending discrimination, whether it's, you know, it's, you know, reducing armed conflict, whether it's increasing democracy, whether it's growing your economy and so forth. Um, the problem is, is that those are extremely difficult to do. Yeah. And, you know, that's what everyone in development wants to do. Everyone wants to grow the economy. Everyone wants to, you know, have better ethnic and religious relations in the country uh, and identity-based, you know, approaches to politics mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so it's not that I take the position that it's, it's, it's a bad investment of time and resources, but that, uh, that it's very, often very difficult to accomplish those goals. Um, and one should be realistic about that. Uh, so then I think response is the idea that one is taking action either in the country or outside the country to uh, interrupt, mitigate, stop this violence once it's starting or once it's about to start. And so you're not trying here to um, address the structural causes of the violence. In the first place, you're saying, okay, it's happening. What can we do in order to diminish it or stop it from continuing? Um, And so that, I think, brings into focus a bunch of other kinds of tools. Um, You know, at the extreme, it can be military intervention, where you're intervening to, you know, protect populations at risk. Uh, It can be, you know, diplomacy, it can be prosecution, it can be sanctions, it can be things of that nature, which really don't address the structural causes of violence. Mm -hmm. They really are designed to either dissuade perpetrators from continuing or to actively protect populations who are at risk. Um, And so that's, I think, the distinction. Now, they don't, I mean, they can go hand in hand, but I do think they, I think, are different fairly different conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent, well, the broad, okay, so the broad overarching kind of issue I want to get to next is the question of who performs these. Uh-huh. And so I guess to start, to what extent over the past couple decades have, has prevention, can you, to what degree can you point to case studies where domestic prevention measures, in other words, prevention measures taken by within a country or a society or a region, to what extent have, are there case studies where those kind of measures, as opposed to external, been effective? So I probably would point to, let's say, you know, Kenya. Yeah. Um, so we have, you know, Kenya, we have, and, and people would disagree with me. Let me just put that. Let me put that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, I think the, the broad the, the best answer to your question is like we should be studying this. Um, <laughs> and um, and I think and I think and let me just say that I you know the argument in the book is that I think for prevention issues it I think domestic actors have to play the lead in yeah. order for it to be real, right? Um, because mm-hmm. these are really about changing fundamental uh, institutions in a country and that's if that's going to be real it's got to come from the domestic actors themselves mm-hmm. um so i mean my probably my off-the-cuff best answer to your question um would be kenya um mm-hmm. and if you look at the there was this uh very intensive electoral violence in uh in 2007 and 2008 in response to a disputed election it, it wasn't genocide but it people feared that, that might happen in Kenya. Um, 
But afterwards, I think there is a fair amount of of internal discussion and and debate and analysis of that that ultimately prompted um, uh, kind of not quite like a Lutheran reconciliation, but a kind of national dialogue within Kenya, uh, efforts to reform the constitution, um, and I and I think I think a fairly rigorous response by by Kenyan civil society, which which is stronger than other African countries. Um, and this is not to say that things are perfect in Kenya by any stretch of the mm-hmm. imagination. Um, and and it's not to say that if given another opportunity, politicians wouldn't use violence again, uh, which could happen in the next elections. But but I do think that that that's a place where the, the sort of subsequent election was much more peaceful um, mm-hmm. than the previous one. And I think that I would point to some things. Burundi, which is going to sh- which is going to surprise you, I also think is an interesting country in this mm-hmm. conversation because you know Burundi has this history of very intensive violence, um, you know, going back to to the genocide in 1972 against Hutus. Then you had the civil war in the 1990s and atrocities on both sides of that of violence. Um, you know, then you get the end of the civil war in Burundi. And I think a real investment on the part of civil society uh, to kind of address some of these sort of structural causes of the violence in the past, uh, a real effort to move the conversation away from a Hutu-Tutsi cleavage to one Mm -hmm. of power, you know, and and questions of distribution of power uh, and abuse of power and corruption and all those things. Um, And as Burundi has descended into a political crisis in the last couple of years, especially the last year, mm-hmm. uh, I think the risk of violence in Burundi has been extremely elevated. And you see over and over again Burundian uh, actors really resisting, in my, in my mind, resisting efforts mm. at the political, the sort of political efforts to manipulate the crisis and turn it into one of a, of an ethnic conflict between Hutu and Tutsi, and it, it, that still may happen. Okay, I mean, I yeah. you know why yeah. you know I'm just talking about what's happened today. I don't know when this will air, or someone's going to be listening to this in a year, and genocide will have happened in Burundi, which yeah. I very much hope doesn't happen. But I've been impressed that 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 political argument has not succeeded, mm-hmm. and the crisis is very unresolved in Burundi. But from a kind of genocide point of view, I think that there has been, uh, not, I, I think that it could have been a lot worse given Burundi's history than what it's been. And I think some of that is due in part to some of the domestic work that's been done in Burundi. So I'm, I'm going to channel my students here because I can hear them in my ba- the back of my mind kind of asking the following question. And the question would be, you, you suggest that in order for prevention measures really to work, there has to be buy-in and participation on the domestic level. And then my students would continue, but isn't it true that often in societies which are predisposed to genocide, prevention measures would ask the people with the power to commit genocide to give up power and to give up authority and to um, and to change society in ways that's gonna da- damage their interests. And so, 
then they would say, wouldn't this make it unlikely that domestic prevention measures would actually be implemented? Yeah. What do you think of that line of reasoning? Yeah, no, I mean, well, let me let me kind of, I'll respond specifically, but yeah. just make a macro point, which is, and the other thing I think we have to keep in mind, and this is because of a sub-argument of the book, whether we're dealing with domestic politics or we're dealing with international ones, is like, it's hard to stop genocide. It's hard to prevent yeah. it. It's hard to stop it. Um, and one, we probably, I think we should be realistic about, or I think we should be conscious of how we define what success is or what it's mm. not. And the sort of all or nothing, every life saved versus, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of lost, I think is a false dichotomy. Um, but I just really appreciate from having done this work for this book that, it's hard. This is hard to do. Mm-hmm. This is hard to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I don't think people understood that in the 90s when it was like we walked away from genocide in Rwanda. We could have stopped it, and we didn't, or, or Srebrenica, yeah. and we didn't. And, like, it's, you know, it's a lot harder than that. Um, so, anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the answer to your question is I think that one has to recognize that in any in all of these domestic spaces, it's not, the, usually the political elite is not uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got domestic act, you know, domestic, sometimes domestic opposition. You've got contestation within ruling parties in some cases. You sometimes have the presence of, you know, of, of, of influential civil society actors, whether in religious circles or media circles or legal circles or human rights advocates. Sometimes you can have pressure from citizens themselves. Um, and so elites will often try to capture that and, and not listen to it. But sometimes they... They have to, or sometimes they want to, and they might want to. In you know, in, you know, political science terms, we would talk about kind of a lock-in, and so you know, sometimes you get societies that are in transitional phases where you get a new leadership, whether that's elected or they win a war or something like that, and they want to, um, they want to try to lock in the gains on the democratic side or on the genocide prevention side and take efforts to try to prevent the country from turning back towards its darker past. Uh, and so I do think there, there are, there are circumstances where that, that exists. I mean, it's not, you know, one can look at Turkey and sort of say, well, that would never happened, Right. But one could look at Germany and say, well, let's look at what happened after world war two. And, there's a pretty remarkable reckoning with the past in Germany um, that is, you know, I think is a, a very interesting model uh, for the rest of us. Um, but in other places too, I talked about Kenya, um, you know, places like Bosnia, where the political political system is very fractured and, and often very paralyzed, uh, but the the political structure was was at some level designed to. It hasn't worked this way, but it was designed to increase, you know, cooperation across ethnic groups uh, in the in the structure of the of the executive. And again, it hasn't worked that way. But I think mm-hmm. that's a place where the aftermath of war and the political agreement was designed to try to address some of the structural problems that that predisposed Bosnia to conflict to to identity based conflict in the first place. Um, so. So you're right. People will resist it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, and doesn't mean and and usually there are there are circumstances where you get leaders who come in and feel that they have a mandate to do X or Y or Z. 
So, so if prevention fails or isn't tried, I suppose, response is, is, is in the next category. Um, and as, as you said, often people still think of, of response in military terms, but, but you suggest a variety of non-military strategies. Can, can you give some examples of non-military strategies and, 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 that, and, and, and what kind of sense do we have from the research about which of these work better? Okay, so um, I think, you know, in my mind, one of the more useful aspects of the book uh, are the tables that I created. Yes. And um, I'm just turning to them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in terms of response, the, the categorization that I make is there are kind of five categories of responses, diplomatic, international, legal, economic and military. And here I was really kind of synthesizing mm-hmm. uh, other people's work. I mean, I, I don't didn't create these categories. Yeah. Um, so, you know, diplomatic could be you, there's a high level mission that goes to a country in crisis. High level mission is composed of, you know, maybe a regional leader, um, could be a, a, a former president of another country, um, could be UN assistant secretary general, could be, you know, you know, could be the foreign secretary of a country, could be the, um, you know, the head of the state department in our country. Uh, and they have a meeting with the principals and, you know, effectively they say, you know, we're watching what you do here, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we want you to know that, that we take, these crimes seriously. And I mm-hmm. think those conversations are happening. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at, you know, Burundi, even Syria, um, you look at Egypt, um, you look at the crisis of, of, of recent crises where, where there was, where there was actual atrocities or there could have been high level atrocities. This happened in Kenya as well. South Sudan, the transition in South Sudan, um, and I think that, that these, these are, there is this sort of diplomatic action. And again, a committed perpetrator is going to just totally ignore it. Mm. But I do think that it shapes the, the calculations that these leaders are making. And in particular, if they are unsure about whether or not they're going to succeed, if you've got these high-level people coming in and saying, look, if you go down this path, you're going to face the consequences, um, I think it's affecting their strategy, their strategic response to how they stay in power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think the diplomacy is sort of one piece of it. And, and you know, I, I isolate, you know, eight different diplomatic actions, but I think in concept, you know, that's sort of what I have. It could be technical assistance. It could be withdrawing technical assistance. It could be, you know, suspending someone from an international organization. Um, it could be, uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, so then I talk about kind of informational responses, and so that can be um, public. So what I was talking about previously was private diplomacy. This could be more like public diplomacy or advocacy or naming and shaming, where. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're getting, whether at the UN level, getting at a State Department level, or another foreign ministry level, or human rights organizations that are documenting the crimes, they're investigating the crimes, or they're investigating preparations for the crimes, and then they're communicating it. You know, cl- 
classic mm-hmm. classic human rights work. Um, mm-hmm. And this is creating a record. Uh, it's shining a light on these problems. It's creating uh, normative arguments that it's wrong. It's citing typically international human rights law and specifically like... Um, you know, often the Rome Statute or for the International Criminal Court. I mean, sort of drawing on the, the 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 treaty structure that exists from human rights and saying and and then investigating these crimes and making a lot of noise about it. I mean, just yesterday or maybe today, we had you know the Commission of Inquiry for Syria mm-hmm. uh, calling what's happening to the Yazidis genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a couple weeks ago Commission of Inquiry on Eritrea. That, uh, that essentially said there have been these you know, crimes against humanity in the country for 25 years. Um, that's what I mean. You know, and then you look at these reports, it's documented, it's usually credible, um, and that's a response. Again, a committed perpetrator is going to ignore it. Um, yeah. But it also generates usable information that, um, that, 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 uh, that people use. <laughs> That's fine. Usable information is. I wasn't very articulate, but you get the point. Um, you can take that a little bit, um, the kind of more coercive versions of that would be kind of countering speech. You know, it could go into jamming radio stations. It could be <laughs> trying to disrupt communication networks. I mean, this is sort of informational where you're, you know, maybe if you wanted, if there was active perpetration of violence, you know, where you, if you want from an outside power's point of view, you could try to, um, you know, interfere with a computer system or interfere with a, um, with a radio network or something along those lines. Um, but I, I primarily meant the former example. Yeah. So then there are these kind of legal missions and here he's sort of blurring into the informational side of it, but where you have investigations that are, I think, designed to prepare the groundwork for uh, for legal action and for prosecution, for criminal prosecution. And so, I mean, in a way, what I, some of what I just cited, I think, is a good example of that, where you have these commission of inquiries, like for the Yazidis. And one of the investigators uh, I was listening to this morning is Carla Del Ponte, who's the former mm-hmm. prosecutor for the ICTR and the ICTY. And she's saying, basically chomping at the bit, saying, I want to prepare, you know, a dossier to take to the ICC. Um, and, but the point here is that there are these legal actions now that didn't exist in the 90s um, Mm -hmm. uh, at the same level. And at the international level, that's really the ICC. Um, But you also have to to look at the string of ad hoc tribunals that have been created for Sierra Leone and Cambodia and Rwanda and Yugoslavia. You, I think, also have um, more frequent domestic prosecutions of of nationals who are in on the soil of a particular country being prosecuted for genocide or atrocity crimes committed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, uh, yeah, I just think that that whole structure has really taken off and that's a response. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be used both as a threat, you know, like if you persist down this path, you're going to face prosecution, therefore don't do it as a kind of deterrence from doing it. Or it's just an actual accountability mechanism of, you know, um, if it does happen, we're going to save the people's lives that were harmed, but there is going to be accountability, and then in the future, other theoretically other perpetrators would risk would, would know that this risk exists. But anyway, there are these legal mechanisms. Mm-hmm. 
But then there are uh, economic mechanisms, and here I think sanctions is really the the, the main one, um, and that can include uh, you know at the general level trade sanctions. It can also be um, sanctions on particular assets of particular individuals. Uh, it can be travel bans on persons. It can be an arms embargo. Uh, that's not really economic; it's more military. But you know some type mm-hmm. of some type of sanction, um, mm-hmm. you know there. Could be a divestment campaign. It could be a consumer boycott. Um, those kinds of things. Okay, and then there are military ones, and and I think the the military ones, you know, range from, and here it's primarily coercive, but really, you know, range from um, peacekeeping, where there's a stronger mm-hmm. mandate for civilian protection, to no-fly zones, where you're you know preventing people from flying could be the creation of a safe area or a safe zone where that's military protection of, of civilians, or could be an intervention to actually stop a advancing uh, military uh, in order to protect civilians. And then at the far end, it could be regime change, um, which, mm-hmm. which I don't, which I'm not advocating. I'm just saying that's an option. Um, so, so those, that's, those are some of the things I think, I think, Basically, the, the the sort of net of this is that there are problems with each of these mechanisms. Yeah. Um, we don't. I mean, I think the the sort of diplomatic, informational, legal ones carry can carry costs. Well, let's say informational and diplomatic. They they don't really carry costs in the short term, and so someone who's fighting to stay in power. Um, it's probably going to ignore that stuff. You don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that on the margins, it's going to shape their calculations for how they stay in power. <clears throat> that's my that's my hypothesis. But mm-hmm. but you know, I think that one has to be realistic. Um, <clears throat> the legal ones are threatening, but they're really only threatening if someone loses power. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at the, and this is a separate conversation, but if you look at the history of the ICC, <clears throat> it really only has traction, um, and even even the ad hoc tribunals, it really only has they really only have traction when the people that are indicted, the defendants, have been ousted from power, because um, mm-hmm. otherwise states effectively don't cooperate with them, like like Omar al Bashir or Uhuru Kenyatta in, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, you know, then you look at the sanctions, and I think I think that policymakers have really moved away from trade sanctions, mm-hmm. and and I think because what what people have found is that overall they tend to punish, they don't punish the elite, they punish the ordinary civilians. The elite have a lot of maneuverability. They find these sort of they use their power to develop, you know, black markets, um, and the people that get hurt are the people that are poor and have less power. Mm-hmm. And if you you know. I think Iraq was a big lesson here for people. When you look at what was happening, you know, medically to the people of Iraq after the first Gulf War, um, you know, and, and just in general, I think that the, the the people that really suffered were not Saddam Hussein and his entourage, who were the decision makers. It was, um, you know, it was really the ordinary Iraqis. Um, <clears throat> so I think, and and I think trade sanctions take a long time to bite. Mm. And so, if you're talking about respond, you know. A measure designed to stop an atrocity in the next month, or the next six months, or the next eight months—it's not clear that it has that effect. Um, 
So then I think people have moved more to these targeted sanctions, so-called mm-hmm. smart sanctions. And unfortunately, you know, I tried to, first of all, I think we must recognize this is a relatively new approach and the literature, the scholarship is, I think is also new, but mm-hmm. the preliminary scholarship does suggest that it works very well. Mm. Um, and a lot of that scholarship was really about, you know, not so much about atrocities, but more about war. Mm. Um, and other kinds of or, or nuclear proliferation, but but it's not very encouraging. Um, so that leaves the question. You know, a lot of that leaves the question of military. And I think what we know from the military intervention stuff is that this also creates all kinds of problems. And um, you know, Libya is our best example right now. Um, but even places like Kosovo, which you know the intervention happened in '99, and Kosovo today is still you know, in a very complicated position. Um, you know, um, so I think, the, and a lot of people who are interested in genocide prevention also, you know, are very wary about throwing militaries around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there are a lot of concerns that are associated with military intervention. You know, fly zones can, can work, but only if there's, you know, only if the Air Force is really a big actor, um, you know, of the perpetrating state. It wouldn't have mattered, yeah. you know, think about Rwanda, wouldn't have, mm-hmm. you know, or even Bosnia, mm-hmm. it really wouldn't, maybe in Bosnia a little bit, but but anyway, you get the point. Um, so, so I think, and I really try in the book to look at each of these squarely yeah. and say, look, these are options. They've been developed. They can work in combination. I think they're part of this deeper structure of atrocity prevention that exists today, but we can't shy away from the fact that we don't know if this stuff works in the way we want it to, um, and that there aren't these unintended consequences from using some of these things, some of these tools, and just sort of look that in the face a little bit. Um, So I think, you know, I hope that this book also reaches, you know, potentially for the next atrocity situation, it can also reach activists. One of the frustrating Mm. parts of the Saved R4 campaign from where I sat was that you know, say in the university, you had lots of students who were, you know, so motivated, cared so much, their hearts were in the right places, um, but they really didn't know what they were advocating for. I mean, they knew they were advocating yeah. to stop genocide, but how do you mm-hmm. get from caring to stopping genocide, I think, was a big blind spot for that movement, or, you know, Coney mm-hmm. 2012, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds mm-hmm. of things where you get people who really, who quickly care about an issue, but they don't really, haven't really thought through, okay, well, what, what are the policy options? Um, and I'm also confident that, that this stuff will change, and, and you know, and that, that even though I take a snapshot of where we are today and evaluate it, I, you know, I'm hopeful that there'll be more tools to develop. People will keep learning. And, and so one of the sub-arguments of the book is we really do need to be evaluating this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a, in a little bit. Um, and we have, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, something okay. like that. So it's not a lot of time. But, um, but you do spend some time um, on the issue of putting back Societies back together after a crisis. Uh, in fact, you use the term the justice cascade. What, what does that mean? And I know it's not your term. You're you're citing someone, but what is this justice cascade? And and what is that meant in terms of trying to put societies back together? Yeah. So, so the justice cascade is is a term that was invented by um, by Catherine Zakink and uh, her colleague Ellen Lutz. Um, 
And um, I think what, what they're referring to, or Catherine is referring to in a subsequent book where I think she elaborated very usefully, was that this sort of, this, this, this growing norm, international norm, that individuals will be prosecuted for major human rights violations that they committed. Uh, and the cascade notion is that, you, you know, what started out as sort of early efforts at doing that in Latin America, um, Romania, um, Portugal, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, has cascaded into this, you know, broader expectation and broader practice that in the aftermath of human rights violations, whether at the domestic level or the international level, that there'll be a kind of criminal accountability, you know, a mm-hmm. trial, a trial, a spe- mm-hmm. specifically what she's referring to as a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think it's accurate in the sense that, that I do think there has been a normative shift, and I think the expectation, there is a stronger expectation that there will be um, uh, some effort at criminal accountability for past human rights crimes. Uh, now, I'm probably not as optimistic as Catherine is in the sense of what the effects of that are, because I do think the what, this it really only comes into play when someone is taken out of power, um, but the justice, the trial stuff is effective, and I also think trials are very limited as a tool of reconciliation, uh, as a tool of history. Maybe I'm sure you're mm. too as an historian. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all kinds of problems with trials, but I do think there has been this this, this normative shift and a shift in practice that there that that that, that one can expect there to be uh, criminal prosecution for past human rights trials um, crimes. Um, so. I think that's big. I think that's a big change. Um, now, whether that again, whether that brings the society together, mm. uh, you know, the, the the advocates say it, this is about breaking a cycle of impunity. This is about having accountability. This is about deterrence, in the sense that if you have a past trial, a trial, it's going to prevent future perpetrators. It's about signaling to populations that something is wrong, um, but. I, you know, I know from having watched Rwanda, I know from other cases that that in practice, I think societies often interpret these trials as very politicized, um, mm-hmm. and very political, and this notion that that this thirst for vengeance, for for justice, has been quenched, and that allows people to move on and to reconcile. I'm not sure that's been demonstrated. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. a nice idea. Um, it mm-hmm. sounds good to us, um, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know that in practice it's really been the case. Um, and I don't. I think a lot of the, the the emphasis has been on this, you know, these criminal accountabilities. But I, but I'm not sure that I'm not convinced that this is really the best way to heal societies. I don't think mm-hmm. we know. I don't think we know what heals societies after atrocity. Mm-hmm. It could be generations. It could be time. If it's about you know learning to you know, fess up to crimes, about taking responsibility, about apologies. Sometimes trials can work against some of those things because Mm. you're putting someone on the defense. You're saying, you know, you're charging someone. Their job is to defend themselves, didn't deny it. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I I think these things are complicated. I don't think, I think there has been a naive optimism in the trend in, tra- in what transitional justice can accomplish 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of transitional scholars, have, justice scholars, have become more skeptical uh, about what the effects of these different justice mechanisms are. And, and here I've sh- shifted to transitional justice as this mm-hmm. broader concept that brings together not just trials, but truth commissions, memorials, um, things of that nature, uh, apologies. Um, um, so... Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'd like to conclude at least this part of the interview by by shifting maybe to a, more, a little bit more personal basis because we talked last time about about your book Making and Unmaking States, uh, and in the end of that book, um, in the conclusion, you offer some kind of tentative policy suggestions, but but make very clear the kind of modesty that you feel is necessary for an academic who's not a policymaker in suggesting policy ramifications for academic research. And here you are writing a book which is evaluating policy making and the experience of policy making. I wonder what that's what's that what that's like for you as an academic. How did you approach that issue? How did you feel about that issue? How did you try and um rec- uh tap into other resources, how, how did, what did that mean for you to be kind of in a position to be at least analyzing policy choices? Well, you know, one response is I'm just a bundle of contradictions. I finished one book. <laughs> no, but um, I, um, so, so when I was, and we haven't talked about how the book came about, yeah. but, but um, you know, I was working with the Holocaust Museum and the first iteration of this book was, you know, as a handbook. And I very much did not want to write a handbook or something mm-hmm. called a handbook. And the reason is, and it goes precisely to what you just said, is I felt like I am not a policymaker. I don't know how to make policy. I don't, I've never been in that position, and I need to be mm-hmm. honest about that. I'm not going to tell a policymaker what to do. Um, and I'm not going to say that this works and that doesn't, blah, blah, blah. What I tried to do in this book was say, this is what the scholarship shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how, this is what I take away from what the scholarship shows. Um, and this is what I think we can learn from some past cases. And let me kind of tee up the questions for you and the problems for you, you being the policymaker, mm-hmm. um, by by summarizing what I think we've learned as scholars, um, and so uh, so I, I that's how I approached it. I was to say I'm not a policymaker. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm not making recommendations. There's not a single recommendation in the book except we should study it more. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So that it's more an analysis. Um, yeah. It's a synthesis. It's an analysis. It's you know bringing something forward. It's trying to be you know in places critical. I think scholars can do that, and I think they can do that, and still be useful in the policy world. I mean, a lot of policymakers. So I interacted with people outside the academy a lot for this project, and um, the a lot of people are you know in my view like want to learn about this. They mm-hmm. they care about it, but they often don't have the time to sit and digest complicated literature. And they often and often our literature, as you know, is, is incremental. It's sort of like, okay, we're pushing this piece of knowledge forward. 
Um, but for a policymaker, they don't they they want it kind of all put together for them, rather than yeah. you know rather than you know reading one article that has a very interesting finding, but it's sort of like it's not in a broader context of uh, of what the rest of the field is saying. Um, so so I mean that, that's sort of one answer. Yeah. One answer your yeah. question is something you and I have talked about before, but I I feel that. Um, I think there are a number of genocide scholars who don't want to, who really want to divorce their work from the policy world, and I and I very much respect that. And in my previous book, the one that we just talked about last time, the Making Make, uh, Making Nations, was was a work of scholarship. It was trying to use social science methodology to evaluate and develop a theory of genocide. Um, and I think the mistake that scholars can make is to say, okay, what's the you know, there's a policy world about what we can do to stop genocide, and then that's going to drive my research question. And my research question is going to be is going to be shaped by what's politically possible. Um, and I think that's not the way to approach scholarship. I think scholarship, we should put the research question first on its own terms. Um, you know, I've, I've seen people, you know, criticize the work of, you know, historians, and they sort of take away it and say, hey, you know, well, what do we do with this? And it's like, well, that's not, that's not, that's, that's not the point, you know. Like, mm-hmm. we, if we're going to learn and develop as a field, we need to have pure research. I totally respect that. But for me personally, when you ask the personal question, I... Mm-hmm. And comfortable and want to contribute to that policy discussion. I don't think everyone has to, but for me, it's something that I want to do. Um, and I see what I've done in this book is to use my knowledge uh, and experience in this field to kind of summarize this for for policymakers, but but also for non policymakers. And I also yeah. want to be clear that I wrote this book that could this could be a very quick, accessible introduction to the field. Uh, for an undergraduate, or even even an advanced high school student, um, mm-hmm. you know, we do there are these different genocide education mandates now in different states. There was just one passed in Michigan, um, mm-hmm. and I think parts of this book can be used in that context as well. Um, so it, I, I may not succeed in straddling all these different lines, um, <laughs> but uh, but but I at least at least felt I should try. Um, well, you've been really generous with your time. Um, I always end these with, with two questions. And, and one is, um, so for people interested in going further, um, if you had to recommend to listeners a single book or perhaps a movie or something that, that meant something to you, that was important to you in the process of, of this research, what would it be? What should I read this weekend? What should um, So what should you read this weekend? That's a good question. Um, you know, I just got a copy of James Waller's Confronting Evil, um, mm-hmm. Engaging Our Responsibility to Prevent Genocide. And there's some overlap between our books, but, but they're fairly mm-hmm. different. And I think his is a very eloquent um, analysis. I think you've interviewed Bridget Conley-Zilkich and mm-hmm. Alex DeWall, their book on ending genocides, uh, how mm-hmm. genocides end. And I think that's, a, I think, a very different but potentially very but very well done and complementary book uh, mm. to what I've done here. Um, I think, uh, so those are, those are some initial responses. To mm-hmm. Yeah. And so 
aside from directing the graduate program. Yeah, so what are you working on now? <laughs> okay, wait, I'll answer that question in just a second. I also think <laughs> I also think people should you know should go to the office of the special advisor for genocide prevention at the United Nations, and uh -huh. they should go to the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations, and look at what they're doing on this topic. And it mm -hmm. may not be enough, but it's something, and it's more uh -huh. than there used to be. Uh, and those reports are very interesting. Um, and so, anyway, you know, just to... You know, that's, that's really good. I, I, I had a wonderful student who just graduated, and I, I, as usual, I bought her a book for a graduation present because that's what professors do. And um, I bought her um, Janine Di Giovanni's uh, recent book about Syria. And she wrote me an email and said she had cried after she did that. And in some sense, that's just the world I and maybe you live in, that I'm the professor who makes people cry. But, but it seems to me it's not enough to leave them there. And maybe that's where your book fits. Ideally, and, and as you say, some of these reporters and, and commissioners who are tasked with this is that we need to be able to send people somewhere and say, okay, the emotional response is a start, but you shouldn't end there. You need to go find out what you can do and what, what you can do well. Or at least what other people are doing. I mean, I yeah, think, sure. you know, I mean, I think the thing that I always struggle with with students and, and maybe you do as well and others or your listeners well is that Sometimes students, you know, they, they sort of learn about this stuff and they want to do something. And and sometimes that, those good intentions can lead to bad solutions. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think it's important for us to communicate how complicated some of these situations are mm -hmm. uh, and to, to sort of be careful in what it is that people do and what it is that they, you know, they, they, they push for. And so I think what mm -hmm. I was suggesting, uh, which is not, not, not totally different from what you're doing, but just, to, to, I think, to recognize that there is stuff being done. It's often yeah. very invisible to the American media and to American college students and even to us as scholars. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know. But I think that there's much more being done than people think is being done. And, um, you know, the Atrocity Prevention Board, we didn't talk that much about it, but this, you know, this mm -hmm. board that President Obama stood up, you know, people are very critical of it for not doing enough and, you know, I won't get into that, but it's, they're doing stuff. It's not yeah. always visible to us, but they're doing stuff. And they're having, you know, people are having a lot of trouble on Syria for a lot of reasons. But it doesn't mean they're not doing stuff on Guinea and Burma and Burundi uh, mm -hmm. and a bunch of other cases that are, are, are not exploding at the moment. So yeah. that's, you know, in some ways I think that's, um, you know, in addition to books, what I was thinking is like, look at what some people who are committed and working in policy are doing on this issue. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, what else am I? What am I working on? I. Yeah. Um, so yes, I am directing graduate studies, and I am not doing that much scholarship. <laughs> I. Uh, I would like to do a project on sort of rebuilding societies after mm -hmm. after war and atrocity, and mm -hmm. I think that's an area that um, I think has a lot of literature, but I, I wanted to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, so. And, and there have been shaped by my experiences in Rwanda, um, but also Cote d'Ivoire and West Africa, where I spent a lot of time for the, the making and making book, um, mm -hmm. and been kind of watching that. But also it's related to this book, kind of like the aftermath, the sort of final section. Yeah. 
Well, I hope sometime you get to do that. And I hope when you do, you'll come back on the show. But thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to ask great questions. All right. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Scott Strauss, author of Fundamentals of Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time for a discussion with Lauren Faulkner Rossi about her book, Wehrmacht Priests, Catholicism and the Nazi War of Annihilation. In addition, today's interview with Scott Strauss begins an occasional series of podcasts that addresses the question of how genocides end and how they might be prevented or mitigated. James Waller, Carrie Booth Walling, and Bridget Conley Zilkich will all appear in this series later in the summer. I hope you'll come back for these interviews as well. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.